Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, the musical man of the moment, Lin-Manuel Miranda, on his new passion project of a movie, Tick, Tick, Boom, on Netflix. Mark Ryle reviews the new version of West Side Story, plus children's author Shane Hegarty on his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing okay in whatever corner of this country or indeed any other country you happen to be listening from. And talking of listening... I start the show with some good news in this week's radio listenership figures that were announced. This humble show that goes out on Saturday evenings as well as a podcast added, if I may say so, a pretty staggering 9,000 new listeners, which I was absolutely delighted about. So if you are one of those new listeners, or indeed if you are an old and regular listener, you're very welcome to the show, and uh, I'm very glad you're listening. So thank you. And staying with thanking people, you know, this week we were asked to be mindful of people working in retail and how they really have been having a hard time and awful stories about people being too mean to mention to them. I just want to give a shout out to a young man I met in Halfords in Dundalk called Darren, who fixed a light on my car in the lashings of rain with the greatest level of good humor and grace I've met in a long time from someone working in retail. And that's not to say I don't meet nice people in retail all the time, but Darren was particularly nice. And we got chatting about movies and he's a big movie buff. And I just want to say a special hello to him. Now, I'm a bit late to the party, but this week I've been catching up with this. People all across this great nation are in pain. They have hard lives. Are you still sore? I can't work here no more. I'll be all right. And we have the cure. This new miracle drug, OxyContin. You will be the largest sales force in pharmaceutical history. Make your doctors feel special. Take them to expensive dinners. Bribe the receptionist with a mani-pedi. Whatever it takes to win their trust. Your most effective talking point are these magic words. Less than 1% of people get addicted to Oxycontin. That's not possible. Yeah, now that is dope sick on Disney Plus, which is dropping every week on Disney. It's up to episode six now. It's only an eight parter. And it is a sprawling tale all about Oxycontin, which was this opioid which was released onto American, I was going to say streets, but let's say into communities. Uh, it would eventually make its way to the streets as well by the pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma, owned famously by the Sackler family. And as you may know, and as was intimated there in the trailer, it was an opioid. It is an opioid and it's addictive properties were fudged and through various dodgy labeling it made its way into mainstream America doctors were in essence bribed to prescribe it and as you probably know it has wreaked havoc across huge parts of America and we we hear about this opioid epidemic and my understanding is oxycontin was the main cause of that or certainly a huge part of it 
And what they've done in Dopesick is they followed two of the crusading lawyers who are trying to bring down this monolith of of the oxycontin problem and uh, and hold the Sackler family responsible you also have Michael Keaton playing a really well-intentioned doctor who gets caught up he's in this mining town and he gets caught up and giving this drug to people because it seems to be having very good effects that all changes it takes place over 10 years and hops around a lot and that can be disconcerting but it isn't in this what i really like about this it's a very serious topic but it is told relentlessly there's never a moment that drags you're just in it as soon as you turn it on it's brilliant storytelling i've said it to you before at the bar for me is when you desperately want to watch another one and and that's how i'm feeling about dope sick i'm only three in but it is really good. It's a solitary tale, but it's incredibly well acted and incredibly well written. And it's now on Disney Plus. So if you haven't been watching it, I highly recommend it. That is dope sick. And I should mention it's directed by Barry Levinson. So this guy knows movies particularly, but uh, he knows what he's doing when it comes to telling a story. And briefly, I also just want to mention the much talked about return of Sex in the City and Just Like That, which was on Sky Comedy on... Thursday night. Now, I watched the first two episodes. I should say, you know, I was a Sex in the City uber fan. I, I I adored it back in the day. You know, I wasn't diverse enough and it was probably too materialistic and all that stuff. That notwithstanding, I thought it was perfect. Six series of TV. Uh, I don't think they ever should have made the movies. And I'm not entirely sure if they ever should have done this reboot. I enjoyed it, I think. I watched it. As you've probably heard, there was a major plot development that you probably didn't see coming. Samantha isn't in it this time. So it held my attention. But I just had this nagging doubt the whole way. Should they not just have left it alone? So let me know what you might have thought or what you've thought if you've watched Sex in the City, the new reboot and just like that john underscore farty or you can email me screen time at newstalk.com now lin-manuel miranda is as i said in the intro the musical man of the moment he is a lot of things he's an actor he's a singer he's a composer a playwright a producer and a film director he's known of course for creating the broadway musicals in the Heights, and of course, Hamilton, which, you know, has, has probably changed musical theatre forever and has become massive. You can still see it, the stage version of it, on Disney+, Plus. incidentally. He's written songs and stories for films like Encanto. He's acted in all sorts of things, Mary Poppins Returns. He's now directed his first feature film, Tick, Tick, Boom. Now, Tick, Tick, Boom stars Andrew Garfield. It's on Netflix, I should say. And Andrew Garfield plays a composer, Jonathan Larson, the true story of Jonathan Larson, who's the man who made Rent, another groundbreaking musical. And it picks up the story of Jonathan Larson in 1990 as he's working as a waiter or a server, I guess, as they call him in the States, in the Moondance Theatre in Soho. And it deals with the stress and pressure he's facing from his friends and family around him as he attempts to write, you know, what he sees as the next 
great musical. And time begins to run out for Jonathan as he has to showcase this work, this musical he's working on. And it gets more intense as the showcase for this musical he's writing is approaching and he's desperately trying to find a song, one particular song for it. The movie's based on Jonathan Larson's musical of the same name. Jonathan Larson, as I said, was the man who wrote Rent, but tragically died before he'd seen the musical have any success. Now, this was a deeply personal movie for Lin-Manuel Miranda. And I'm delighted to say I got to chat to Lin about the musical Tick, Tick, Boom and all sorts of other things, including his appearance in Curb Your Enthusiasm. You know, there's something lovely when an artist or a singer or something makes a piece where they're clearly you know, in love with something or it's changed their artistic perspective. I was thinking of this U2 song, The Miracle of Joey Ramone. Sorry to Irish it up for you so soon, but that's a gorgeous song because Bono talks about he heard Joey Ramone and his life changed. And I know a bit about your background. And it seems to me this is a love letter, not just to Jonathan Larson, but to Broadway and how it changed your life if you read into it that way. Do you see it that way or am I in the dark there? No, 100%. Jonathan is Jonathan Larson is the person who gave me permission to write musicals in the first place. I, I'd always loved musicals. My parents uh, grew up, you know, had lots of cast albums in the house. Mm. Um, but when I saw Rent for my 17th birthday, it was the first truly contemporary musical I'd ever seen. This took place in my hometown, just downtown from where I lived. It was the most diverse cast I had ever seen on stage. It looked like the New York I actually live in, not an all white version of the New York we actually live in, um, as so many musicals did. Yeah. And um, and it was the first show that, it, it's the show that made me go from loving musicals to thinking I could write one one day. Right, well, you certainly wrote some after that. Tell me this, there's a great thing with the tick tick, his his anxiety throughout the thing, and he's he's trying to get somewhere. And it's, it's, it's a propulsive kind of narrative because he wants to be something. Did you have that? tick tick in your life with with your own creativity do you think was there a certain point where you felt the clock was ticking I don't mean you wanted to have a baby or anything but you know you wanted to give birth to your own music can you relate to that yeah I mean to quote Jonathan Larson in Rent I'm a New Yorker fears my life um you know (laughs) when you grow up in New York City and you know my parents were big newspaper readers and so they brought home the Times the News and the Post every day and I have to go past the pictures of the grizzly murders to get to my Garfield comic strip. Um, <laughs> so you grow up with a certain innate morbidity and a street sense and spider sense of navigating uh, the city. Um, and so, um, yeah, you hear the ticking of the clock, I think, very early, as you know, as, as J.K. Rowling put it, you see thestrals. Um, those see <laughs> thestrals. Um, and so um, Jonathan becoming a hero of mine is also a, a product of that, right? Like the, the tragedy that he didn't live to see uh, the success and triumph of his work is something that really stayed with me. And so it made me a pretty morbid and superstitious uh, 20-something while I'm a substitute teacher uh, trying to get my show on. Um, and I remember the, the weight of relief when we played our first preview off Broadway and like, thank God, it doesn't just exist in my head anymore. It is in the world in some kind of tangible form. I don't know why I was surprised by Andrew Garfield, but he's a fantastic actor, but he's so good in this. He really is. And I watched it with my wife and she, and she's a fan of his, but she said, I can't believe how good he is in it. Did you always want him? 
I did. I knew I needed a theater beast to play okay. Larson because it was something, it was someone for whom we were going to have these very grounded, real moments and someone who's going to play piano and sing to the back row yeah. for much of the movie. And, and, and we needed someone who could do both. And I saw, I was lucky enough to see him in the production of Angels in America at the National Theater uh, in the UK. And, you know, he had his rib cage cracked open for eight hours. I mean, that's just an endurance. <laughs> Um, you know, and and that he was so open and alive. I just I just left that production thinking he can do anything. Like singing is the least of it. Um, mm -hmm. And it was also a piece that accessed his joy in a very real way. I think often Andrew is asked to suffer beautifully on screen, and he <laughs> suffers more beautifully than than anyone. Than most uh, than most. He just you know he cries and you cry. Um, you know I'm thinking of him in that scene in the Social Network. Uh, you better lawyer up, asshole. <laughs> um, and, uh, and but but this was a um, a role that required all of his joy and all of his everything, and, yeah. and he do it so beautifully. No, he certainly did. I was thinking as your fame grows, you probably start hearing that more and often, you know, you better lawyer up, asshole. But anyway, we'll see <laughs> how it goes. Uh, tell me this, not, not to be sad, but uh, Stephen Sondheim uh, recently departed at, at the tender age of 91. And I saw you do a beautiful tribute to him, I think in Times Square a couple of weeks ago. Is it true that he because he, I should say for listeners, he's he's a part of the movie. He's played by a fine actor. Actually, and, yes. Yeah. But is it true that he, you know, gave you a rewrite in terms of a phone message and said, I think you better change that up a bit? He did. And how how grateful am I that it was one of his final gifts to us? Mm. Um, you know, I showed, I finally summoned up the courage to show him the film pretty late in the edit. I had been showing him every draft. You know, it's yeah. as much a love letter to him as it is to, to Jonathan. And um, he, when I, when he finally wrote me back, he, he had wonderful things to say about the film, but he also said, I can beat what you wrote. <laughs> For the final voicemail that Sondheim sends to, to Larson, and he volunteered to record it himself. And so you hear Steve's final voicemail uh, to John on there. And, you know, now in the wake of his passing, which we're all still mourning because he was mm -hmm just here and and was 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 with us um till his final moments um it's an encouragement for all of us now yeah. it, it's not only to john but to all of us to like keep writing and be proud yeah wow listen uh a million miles away from all that in some sense is curb your enthusiasm and i i just have to ask because you know like they say in the mafia, you got some set of balls, my friend. Anyone who will go on Curb Your Enthusiasm and play themselves is just, it, it's a wonderful thing to do because you have to be brave because you don't know what Larry David's going to do. And your part it's of that, <laughs> yeah, I know. And your part in that series was, oh, it was amazing. So did you have any reservation? No, I had no reservations. I was thrilled to be invited, but I also had to think carefully about Everyone ends up at Larry as Larry's enemy at one yeah, point. I and I know I don't have it in me to be Susie Essman. I'm not going to be the insult master who just is like, get the f out of here. <laughs> you know, she's so good at that. Yeah. And so I realized my, my way of um, interacting with Larry would be aggressive 
um, optimism and the <laughs> to anything he says. Um, yeah. So to find those moments where he's like, what would I go? What do you think of this, Larry? He'd say, oh, I like that when I go fantastic and then do the opposite of whatever he said. Um, that would that was a really fun way um, to, you know, to kind of also, um, you know, interact with him. And it was yeah. it was such a joy because you really do. You have to find the version of yourself that works. Um, yeah. Aggressive optimism. I like that. That's that's a takeaway phrase. Course, like kryptonite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't, can't outright yell at you. He, he's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then finally, and a complete shot in the dark, so to speak, I started by quoting Bono to you. We are a pretty musical nation here in Ireland and we're renowned for, and singers like Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel come here and can't get over how much we know the words and we sing along to every song. We're kind of famous for it. And uh, you know, I, I'm assuming it's a no, but have you ever thought about doing anything Irish for a project? Like, we have such a rich musical history. I know I'm putting you on the spot here, and no will suffice, but I'm just wondering. You never know. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, one of the great side effects of, of being in this improv hip-hop group called Freestyle Love Supreme was we've been to all of the comedy festivals. We've been to Melbourne, and we spent a good amount of time. Our first, my first time uh, in the UK was... Uh, being part of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And, and we befriended the great Jason Byrne uh, on that, who is, I think, one of the funniest people alive. Um, so, you know, if, if it was with him, I could probably <laughs> find my way there. Um, but that's, that's someone I drop anything to see. Um, okay. Anytime I'm in the same country as him. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't okay. know. Well, I'll get on to Jason Byrne. I, I think we have his number somewhere and see if yeah, we can get great. the ball rolling. Listen, lovely to talk to you. And Tick, Tick, Boom is, is great. Thanks a lot, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. I can't do it again, Mike. I can't stomach five more years of waiting tables, five more years of, of writing things that no one will ever see while Broadway just churns out mega musicals without a hint of even the slightest thing original or, God forbid, something to actually say about the world. Are you done? No! The presentation, John, it was amazing. And it would be a tragedy to give up what you have. You did it? Please. I was a mediocre actor. Do you know how many mediocre actors there are in New York City? Do you know how many Jonathan Larsons there are? One. A clip there from Tick, Tick, Boom, and you heard Andrew Garfield there in Tick, Tick, Boom, which is now on Netflix, which I really enjoyed. I'm not the greatest musical fan. I, I'm liking them more as life goes on, but uh, I really enjoy this. Andrew Garfield, as I said, to Lin-Manuel there is immense. And before that, you heard me talking to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is uh, huge at the moment and still a very nice guy, despite that level of fame. Really interesting to see what he might do next. Up next, another musical. West Side Story, in the hands of Steven Spielberg, reviewed by Mark Royle. Now you're welcome back to screen time. We'll turn to the week's new releases, and chief among them is this. Are you ready? Tonight is about family. The first gringo boy who smiles at you... I never seen you before. You're not Puerto Rican. Is that okay? Do you want to start World War Three? 
You know, I wake up to everything I know either getting sold or wrecked or being taken over by people that I don't like. You keep away from him as long as you're in my house. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I'm gonna think for myself. Tony, we need you if we're going to war. Who are you? Yes, a clip there from West Side Story, the new reimagined but kind of old version. More of that and on, directed by Steven Spielberg. We're also going to be looking at a movie called Wrath of Man, which sees Guy Ritchie and Jason Statham team up again. And we're joined now by our resident critic, Mark Ryle, who played no small hand in our stellar results in this week's JNLR Bounce. Mark, hello, sir. How are you? I've, I was wondering where you were going with that. I didn't know what you were going to come out with. You played a role in our bounce. In bounce. <laughs> yeah, it's nothing to do with me. No, come, come. So listen, I played a clip there. Uh, West Side Story, Steven Spielberg yeah. has tackled, you know, possibly the most famous musical of all time. Possibly, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a remake of the nineteen sixty one um adaptation that it was uh, it came from the Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim stage musical, which in turn was loosely based on Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. So, uh, if unless you've been living under a rock, West Side Story, it's about two rival gangs, the Jets and the Sharks, in nineteen fifties New York. Um, and the Jets and the Sharks are in the middle of a, a long-running gang war that's been fought over territory, and they are going to settle their differences through the, the noble medium of dance and finger-clicking. <laughs> and, and in the middle of all of this, Ferrari, um, love blossoms between an ex-Jet, Tony, and the Sharks' leader's sister, Maria, who are played by uh, Rachel Ziegler and uh, Ansel Elgort. Yes, and it's kind of, as you mentioned, Romeo and Juliet, the Montagues and the Capulets, albeit on the upper west side of New York. Now, people may be aware of this, but what's certainly interesting is that Steven Spielberg has kept it set in the 1950s. And Mm. he's also used the Bernstein Sondheim lyrics and music to Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much the same extent, obviously, with a couple of tweaks. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very straight remake. Um, I've, I suppose I have two things to say about it. The first one is it's great, and the second thing is <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> it's it's a tough one because I love Spielberg and I hate musicals. Um, and West Side Story, it's an incredibly well made movie, and if you're a fan of musical theatre, it will make you very very happy indeed. However. I've really, I've got a a personal bias here that I'm struggling to get past. I hate musicals. I just don't get them unless there are Muppets involved. Um, (laughs) I would. You mean the Jim Henson type? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, Muppets. I would watch a Muppet Star Is Born any day of the week, or Mm. you know, a a Muppet West Side Story. Um, Other than that, though, I'd rather be the James Franco guy at the bottom of the ravine in 127 hours. Um, but look, that, I suppose that's why I'm here. We're, we're, I suppose we're the two guys that in the nuclear submarine. We both have to turn our keys at the same time. <laughs> well, look, I, you see, I agree with you halfway in that. I thought it was a great movie and I don't hate musicals. I'm not a big fan of them. I yeah. find I'm liking them more as I get older. I don't know. You know, right, yeah. I'm also liking classical music more, you know, so maybe it's, it's growing on me, but I think you have to marvel at the 
sheer spectacle of this, the fact that he's made it look like the 1950s so well, and yet yeah, it doesn't yeah. look CGI to it in an inch of its life. The other thing we have to talk about, and it's causing some controversy is the right word, is that the Puerto Ricans have been, you know, made a lot more characterful than they were yeah. in the original 1961 version. And that's great. However, their Spanish dialogue is not being subtitled. And Spielberg's right. rationale for this is, well, it's a second language of America. Spanish people and Latin people go see movies in English all the time. That's not their first language. What did you make of that? I know this isn't a politics show, or, but as a cinematic thing, no, how did you find that? I mean, I understand where he's coming from. And in all honesty, it did. I, obviously, I don't speak Spanish, um, but I, I, you, you know what's going on. Yeah. And uh, like Spielberg is such a master storyteller that you could like it didn't make any difference to me at all. I thought about it for maybe 30 seconds and then I just forgot about it and I went with it. Yeah. And you get what's going on. And, you know, we were covering or I was a good while ago now, the Irish language movie Aract. And I was saying to its director, Tom Sullivan, that, you know, my Irish is like a lot of people's. Unfortunately, it it stopped when I was 17 and it was pretty bad when I was 17 anyway. But I can. I got most of what was going on and I remember more than I thought. And not that I speak any Spanish, but that you, you knew what was happening. So exactly, I, yeah. I was fine with that. Now the argument is, you know, where does this stop? Are we going to, you know, Kieran Cudahy in the hard shoulder was saying to me, you know, is, does that mean every Swedish person who goes to a movie has to be representative? I still think it, it works. And I, I think it was a good idea what he did. Uh, yeah. I mean, it did. Obviously it's not all in Spanish. No, 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 no. Only certain oh, bits. Yeah. I think it's fine. You know, yeah. um, Anyway, so other than that, uh, technically, um, it is incredible. Yeah. Um, I don't think Spielberg has it in him to make a bad movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he Like the camera, it's constantly doing something interesting and is drawing your eye to something interesting. Um, what was missing for me was the emotional hook. Usually Spielberg can can be relied upon to manipulate your emotions better than, you know, John Williams can lead an orchestra. Mm. But this kind of left me a bit cold. And as I said, it looks fantastic. It was shot by Spielberg's longtime cinematographer, Janusz Kaminski. And it looks gorgeous. The the color palette is is kind of discreetly very dependent on what's happening. The big song and dance numbers are shot in this lower technicolor. And they look like, they do look like they've been lifted from the the 1950s. but um so it is it's it's dazzling but my issue with it is that it's just it's inessential and i think even if you are a fan of of musicals you would have to admit that there's nothing really vital about this um and i do think it was an odd choice but you see by that token then like if you look at the 1961 version you know Mm. it's as good as that if not better it dare i say it is. So are you saying the 96, 1961 is inessential as well? Or are you just saying it's, this is no. inessential because we already have one? No, it's inessential because it's a Spielberg movie. Um, and he, he, he's, he's 74. And the, the, the fact of the matter is that we have a, a finite amount of movies that we can expect to get from him. And um, I just think that this is a waste of a good Spielberg. Um, <laughs> he's, gone, he's gone through a number of phases you know, over the course, of, he's got a 50 year career, you know, at the beginning of the 1970s and the 1990s, he just knocked out classic after classic effortlessly. And then, of course, he moved into that important period of his career. But like late period Spielberg, stuff like the BFG and the Post and Ready Player One, mm. none of these are really prime Spielberg for me. And what was missing, as I said earlier, was that emotional um, hook 
that you could usually be re- relied on, you know? Yeah, folks, Mark Wyler's just put Steven Spielberg on life support machine there. He doesn't have many left in him. But you see, I did think there was an emotional hook because, you know, this doomed love affair that is at its centre, yeah, yeah, that was emotionally gripping to me, you know? Okay, so, yeah, yeah. Fair but enough. look, uh, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I, I don't agree with you because I don't despise musicals. That they're, they're growing on me. So We should probably I, talk about the cast. We don't have a huge amount of time, but let's oh, quickly. Okay. Ansel, Ansel Elgort. Elgort. And yep. also the wonderful lady. Ra- Rachel Ziegler is the uh, is the, the lead. She's Maria. I thought I thought they were both great in it. Uh, I, I disagree quite strongly. You didn't you, you didn't <laughs> yeah, like but, either of them? No, Rachel Ziegler, she's fine, but she's really not given them much to work with. The bit the, the most glaring issue with the, this whole thing is that Ansel Elgort, he's just been woefully miscast. Um, I, I think as far as I'm concerned, there's a, a 404 error where his personality and his charisma should be. He's just, I don't know what he's doing in this. Um, I have to talk about Mike Face very quickly as the, the riff, the leader, the, the Jets. He's just tremendous. Yes. He's got a real edge to that performance there. And uh, Rita Marino as well. He, she's playing who was, a different who, character. Who was in the yeah, original? Yeah, she was Anita in the original, but she's kind of she's playing a different role here. But this kind of acting as a link between the old and the new, yeah, very nice. But yeah, the the, the two leads are, uh, I mean, uh, Ansel Elgort. He's just he's woeful. So, what would you say, stars wise? This is funny. Now, I'm going to give this a four because if you look at it objectively, it's a very <laughs> very well made musical. Yeah, which I have to, you know. I mean, it, it's a it's a good musical, so I'm giving it a four. Well, that's incredibly democratic of you because I'm going to give it a four as well. Uh, there you go. Because I, you see, we were one of the, well, I was going to say rare, but it's happening more and more now. Uh, we were at it together. And when I came out, I was you, kind you of You want to run off by matching uh, vests if I, <laughs> if I Yeah, well, there was other reasons for that. But uh, I was, and I probably wasn't as fond of it as I am now because, I, you know, I say it to you a lot, but I did find it reoccurring to me, which is always the sign of a well, good that's, movie. Yeah. That and is I'm, a good sign. I was smiling when it reoccurred to me. So I'm going to give it a four as well. Mark hated it, but gave it four stars. So that's the type of nuanced review you get on this show, folks. Now, listen, and a movie that is wildly different is called Wrath of Man, which is, is this in cinemas from this Friday? I haven't seen it's this, on, incidentally. It's, it's on Amazon Prime from Friday, but you'll probably find it in the DVD section in the forecourt of a petrol station <laughs> next to a double CD of 40 driving classics. <laughs> Okay, so you loved it, right? Oh, uh, man. Guy Ritchie and Jason Statham. Statham, yeah. Um, he, for me, Guy Ritchie, I think he's a very patchy director. Yeah, he I agree with He started doing that, that Cockney geezer cods wallop like uh, Lock, <laughs> Stock and, and Snatch. And they, he has done, in fairness, he has done a couple of, of entertaining, likable movies like the, the first Sherlock Holmes. And um, I thought Man From U.N.C.L.E. was really good as well. But then he he comes out with complete rubbish like Revolver and Swept Away and that that god-awful King Arthur thing from a couple of years back. So he is capable of producing good stuff. This is not it. Um, Jason Statham drives a truck, is that right? He is... Okay, it's a it's a very manly movie full of manly men with names like Bullet and Boy Sweat doing <laughs> manly things like shooting each other and planning heists. And yeah, the the manual the the manliest of these manly men is Jason Statham, <laughs> and he he plays a master criminal who has just started working for a security firm that moves cash around. 
Okay. And um, two of the firm's drivers have recently been killed during the course of a robbery. And Statham's sudden appearance is not a coincidence. Now, I won't go into his real reason for being there, but it's not to win Employee of the Month. Okay. So this is no fun at all. It's terrible. It might sound like it might sound a bit like Michael Mann's Heat, mm. um, and that may well have been the inspiration. But this is more like it's less heat and more tepid water. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it is completely joyless. Um, and not only is it joyless, it is super dumb. It's not just dumb; it's super dumb. Uh, but it's really trying very hard to be clever. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he Richie uses this it's this non-linear narrative that jumps three months forwards and then five months backwards and then forwards again, and then we get to see the same event multiple times from very very slightly different perspectives, and the perspectives aren't really distinctive enough to 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 justify it. And yeah, okay. go ahead. No, I was just going to say that you know that's funny that technique. That can be annoying unless there's a serious point for it because it's just, it's hard to follow and it irritates a viewer. Like I was talking at the start of the show about Dope Sick on Disney Plus and it jumps around and it does so brilliantly and it starts to coalesce and you don't mind it. But when it's done badly, it's awful. Yeah, it's, it's, you're just seeing the same thing over and over again. It's just annoying. It's, this is like um, a a Rashomon of excrement. Oh. Oh dear. <laughs> and I haven't even begun on the dialogue. <laughs> Which is ropey, have, I'm sensing. Oh my god, it's just shockingly bad. I have a couple of ex- examples I'd like to I'd like to read out. Okay, um, good. He's brought notes, folks. Uh I don't care what you guys think. That man's a dark horse. He's got a dark spirit. Or my my favorite, boredom's more dangerous than bullets. The, it actually doesn't sound that bad to me, but anyway. <laughs> Well, you didn't have to watch it. That's the dialogue true. sounds like it was it was written by a fifteen year old who fed it through an online translator into Spanish and then fed it back again. And you can tell that the cast don't really know what to do with it because they often sound like they're doing a read through or a rehearsal. And at the beginning, I thought, is this intentional? Is this kind of some sort of <laughs> postmodern performative art piece? But but no, it's just Richie is just. Shane, uh, sorry, not Shane Ritchie, Guy Ritchie. He's just rubbish at writing dialogue. Shane Ritchie's a proper star now. Don't be having them <laughs> in the same. <laughs> okay, I feel like we're we're going down a serious, uh, what would you say, dark hole here with yeah. uh, Wrath of Man. So that sounds awful. Uh, what are you going to say, stars wise? I'm giving a one. It's absolute yeah. rubbish. Okay, okay. Your review. I watched it, I watched it so you don't have to. Well, I appreciate that. You really sounds like you took one for the team this week. Your review was certainly entertaining. I laughed quite a lot in it. I don't think that's the point of the movie, though. So Mark is saying no, avoid the, point of the review either. <laughs> <laughs> avoid at all cost. Wrath of Man, which is on Amazon Prime from this Friday. The yeah, this December. Friday. Okay, yeah. and as Mark says, coming to a petrol forecourt on DVD and maybe even VHS anytime soon. But the big new release of the week is West Side Story, which is in cinemas from the 10th of December. Mark gave it a four. I also gave it a four. I kind of loved it. He kind of hated it, but could see why people would love it. So he very democratically gave it a four. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks, John. Talk to you next week. Mark Ryle there talking to me about Wrath of Man.
Let's hope we don't get sued. <laughs> and also West Side Story by Steven Spielberg, which is now in cinemas. And uh, I thought it was funny. He gave it a four. I gave it a four, but he kind of hated it. Listen back to the review, though. Uh, it all makes sense. Up next, children's author Shane Hegarty on his favorite movie. Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone about their favourite movie. Shane Hegarty is the author of the best-selling Boot and Darkmouth series of books for younger readers. A former Irish Times journalist, he took the leap into full-time writing and it seems to be working and indeed there's even talk of possible options for the big screen, but more of that anon. He's here ostensibly to chat about his favourite movie. Hello, Shane. How are you? Hi, John. How are you? I'm very well. So listen... I asked you earlier in the week what your favorite movie was and straight away you kind of knew where you were going. So would you tell our listeners what it is and why it is? Yeah, so my my favorite movie and uh, I have, I get asked this question a lot when I kind of visit schools and libraries and festivals and the kids ask, what's your favorite movie? Uh, So I've had a lot of time to think about this and it is E.T., um, a film which... We we can finish there really, you know, (laughs) you can go now. (laughs) Well, it seemed... In a, in a strange way, especially because I write books for children, it seemed like an obvious answer. And and sometimes you feel like you should have something different or, you know, more varied or whatever it might be, because E.T. Uh, is, you know, almost like a cornerstone of, I suppose, what, you know, t- storytelling that that kind of hits uh, the mark for children and hits it for adults and kind of hits it everywhere. And it's there is so much that's followed it that has really tried to mimic it and to pay homage to it. And, you know, I've certainly done a lot of that in my own writing. So it seems like a really obvious one, but I can't escape it. It's just a film which ever since I saw it as a kid has just stuck with me. And any time it has come on at any stage over the years and for a long time pre-Netflix, really it was Christmas. You would have that moment of Christmas when you'd walk into a room and find it on I would be able to sit down at any point in it and regardless of knowing exactly what was going to happen in the film would find myself choking up at the end and find myself in awe of the storytelling and how it looks how it sounds the acting in it is superb when you watch it um the writing in it is superb and and obviously the music and it um yeah, it just it's one of those films which it just I, 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 I can go back to that any time. And now that I've got kids of my own, I've got four kids, I've seen their own response and their own reaction to it. And it hits them just as hard. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw it? I was actually trying to remember this because there used to be a little cinema. I live in Scaries and I and I know that there was a cinema here which was run by a, a relative of mine. And I remember back in the kind of early 80s he brought me i was playing outside the house and superman 2 was on and he said oh, great movie superman, have you seen superman 2 you should see superman 2 and he literally brought me down to the cinema to watch it and gave me popcorn and sent me in which was great except he hadn't told my mother and um she was like out in the street wondering where i'd gone <laughs> ah the uh, 80s the 80s so perfect kind of 80s child upbringing but I, do, I was looking at it and, and much as I want to believe I saw it in the cinema first, I'm not sure that I did because the cinema had closed by the time E.T. actually came out. So it must have been video or TV or something like that. Um, 
so it, 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 it rather than have that moment where I go, I remember seeing E.T. for the first time. I think it was one of those where just it's so part of my childhood. Yeah. Um, I would have been about eight when it came out. And I just remember it, you know, I suppose as, as I began to watch stuff on my own. And, and of course, we remember that things back then or those of us who were around in those dark, dingy uh, days of the 70s and 80s. You had to search out stuff as a kid on TV. You could, you know, it didn't, it wasn't there all the time. So I found myself watching a huge amount of um, black and white B movies. BBC would be great for showing things like Flash Gordon on a Saturday morning, um, the the old thirties sort of Flash Gordon. I mean, the stuff that actually influenced a lot of 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 kind of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg's work. Um, I say thirties, maybe it was fifties, whatever it was, um, and all those kind of old classic science fiction, Star Trek as well, the original series. And so, you know, all that stuff was a big influence on me. And I think somewhere along the way, obviously, I I kind of found E.T. As I did a lot of Spielberg's work around that time, Close Encounters would have been a big thing for me as well. Um, I really, really, I still love that that film. And uh, so somewhere along the the way, yeah, I would have found E.T. And like so many kids, I would have seen myself in it. I think that was a big part of it. Um, and as I've got older, I see I've seen myself in it in different ways. So now I'm mm. the parent, I suppose. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And I think one of the things that I love about E.T. So we could, you know, you there is a science fiction element. There is the um, the magic and, and, and the fantasy of it and that that idea of a child um, having this kind of uh, friend from outer space, which is such a kind of a basic story idea that kind of magical friend idea but actually the stuff that's that i've really grown to appreciate are the family dynamics in it the sibling dynamics the way that spielberg at the time had an ability to really just make a a, a house feel real and and and, and a, a dinner table feel real and as i've got older i've seen i've seen that in my own life i see how chaotic uh family life is and 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 the the bickering and the laughs and everything kind of in between and he i think that's the stuff that's that now i really i watch and i go wow you know he's he really nailed that yeah well to cross movie references et is strong with this one uh it clearly (laughs) runs deep and do you think in terms of your own writing it's had an, an influence or is that stretching it maybe i know it can be hard to tell you know and i'm not suggesting you borrowed ideas or whatever but you think it's affected what you do now in terms of your writing maybe it hasn't you know i don't know no i i think it has because strangely enough i'm i can't draw and i and when i again when i when i kind of talk to kids they ask about the drawings in my books so in, in Darkmouth and in Boot, there's, there's some fantastic illustrations by James Delarue and, and Ben Mantle. I don't do any of those and I can't do any of those, but I think very visually while I'm writing. And I'm definitely hugely informed by that, by E.T., the you know, that, that I think when you're writing, you're trying to get that clarity of what, what, it, what is the reader going to see. And I think... One of the things about E.T. is it's not a subtle film. You can't accuse it. It's, an, it's not as if you watch it and you discover new layers every time. And there are films since that I've watched that I will rewatch and rewatch and see something new every time. E.T. is, is it's quite bombastic. Um, it's, it's, it's all there, you know, and I think Spielberg, I know this kind of idea of the Spielberg face, uh, you know, that kind of look of awe and tears and, and um, 
you, you, that you get in Close Encounters as well as E.T. and you get it in Jaws 2, where, where not Jaws 2, the film, I mean, Jaws yes. as well. Uh, <laughs> and definitely, definitely not in Jaws, Jaws 3, too, yeah. 3D, no. And, um, but, so I suppose there are, it's, it's such a visually impactful film. And, and, and also, as I said, you know, there's bombast in the, I mean, the music is obviously uh, so uh, classic and it all comes together and he really throws the kitchen sink at it, but it, but it makes it work. And I think, I think on two levels, firstly, as I said, that visual level, I suppose you're trying to get that impact when you're writing for kids and often the stuff I write has, it has to have drama in it, but it has to have heart and humanity and jokes. And you're trying to constantly kind of hit those points where a kid wants to turn the page. They want to know what's happening next. So I'm, I suppose visually I'm finding those moments in my head and then trying to write them down. But also as a story, it's a really brilliant and um, I think almost a perfect story beat for beat um, from the setup, from its opening scenes all the way to its conclusion. It just, every single beat of it works. And, um, you know, you'd almost use it as a template yeah. for what yeah. I suppose is that kind of classic structure. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's, 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 it's for a reason because it's, it's, um, it hits every single beat almost spot on. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. It is almost the perfect movie. You could say, well, listen, that is brilliantly described. I mentioned in the uh, intro about taking the leap into full-time writing. So I, I just have to ask, you know, that moment of deciding I'm going to leave this reasonably secure job as much as any job is in this day and age and write for a living. I'm sure you've been asked it a lot, but was, was that a nerve-wracking time in your life? Because you don't know how things are going to pan out. Um, do you know what? It, it was a really exciting time um, because it's something I'd always wanted. Uh, I'd and and you know I think and I think that's the interesting thing as well. I know we're kind of talking about ET and now we're getting to the writing, but I think there's a childhood element. There's a child. There's, we we feel a certain way when we're kids and we we see the world in a kind of a more magical and fantastical way, and we feel as adults often that we lose that. Um, that it sort of drifts away and maybe even our imaginations drift away. And what was really exciting was at a kind of as, a, as an adult, I just I found that part of me again, that part of me that cr could create stories and wanted to create stories and could sort of find the jokes and the fantasy and all those things. And to then find that you could, first of all, create a world in Darkmouth about this kid who has to fight monsters but doesn't want to do it. And to find that somebody else went, yeah, we we can see that world, or we really like it, and we want to um, put it out there was fantastic. So, like, I'm really lucky. I'm really lucky, and it's a ridiculous job that I have. <laughs> you know, my next book is 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 about impossible ice creams and a kid called Limpet and a chicken called Curtis and an evil villain called Mister Fluffy. And when you, um, you know, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense in a way that that can be a job. Um, and look, it's you know you you have your ups and downs and all of that but i think no definitely a kind of pretty exciting thing to be doing and something i'd i'd always wanted to do yeah well well fair play and uh it's working so far and it sounds good to me and listen finally you know i don't know how much you can say about this uh, there are many options in my father's mansion but it, it darkmouth has been optioned so where is that at it's a miracle that any movie gets made as you well know so you're in this uh, embryonic stage but can you tell us how it's looking or what can you say about that 
Yeah, so it's kind of hard to, in part because what happens is you sort of, so yeah, Darkmouth was was bought and, and optioned and has um, kind of been in production, pre-production for, for a while now, uh, but it's such a different world to writing books. You write a book, yeah. you put it down. Um, if somebody wants to publish it, if they like the story, they edit it, they add the illustrations, they put the cover on it and it becomes a book and it tends to get done in a fairly sort of straightforward, linear process. Filmmaking, my insight into it is that, it, as you said, it is a miracle that anything gets made because there is there are so many people involved, so much money, so much that can go wrong. So look, it's, it's um, a bit of a balancing act, I know, and hopefully... Um, things will come together uh, at some point down the line. Um, but it's sort of fascinating for me because I don't really have, well, I don't have anything to do with it. So I've sort of been watching it from the outside. Yeah. And um, and then I kind of go back and, and do my own thing. But as I said, it gives me an appreciation for the miracle that is filmmaking and especially yeah. the miracle that is a great film that everything yeah. has to come together so perfectly. Yeah. And Shane, just if people want to hear more from you about all that you write and all that you do, is there a website they can check you out on? Well, you sound like my agent now because I really do need to get a website <laughs> together. Uh, but, uh, well, you can find me on all the usual places online and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. But uh, look, the old Google search will will find it. Or if you go in, as as you should do, go into your local bookshop, uh, your local independent bookshop, or go into Easton's or Dubray or uh, O'Mahony's or wherever it might be. Um, and uh, hopefully you'll find a few books on the shelves there and something for everyone. And I do try, I think, as I said, if, 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 on the ET front and the Spielberg thing, you know, I'm writing for everybody, really. And I'm writing my, for myself first and the child that I was. So mm -hmm. hopefully, uh, you know, whether whether you're a kid or whether an adult reading for the kid or to the kid, uh, there's a lot in there for you to enjoy. Absolutely. Look at that. This is a perfect radio guest. He begins where he started out with E.T. and helps plug his old books. I don't think you do need an agent. Shane Hegarty, thank you very much. Thanks, John. E.T., can you say that? Can you say E.T.? E.T. 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 Be good. Be good. I taught him that, too. You should give him his dignity. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Phone. Phone? He said phone? He said phone? Can't you understand English? He said phone. E.T. Home phone. E.T. Phone home. Some classic dialogue there from E.T. And that was the favourite movie of Shane Hegarty, who you heard me talking to about E.T. and also his blooming career as a children's author. That is it for this week. Special thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on this show, as she does every week, and who's uh, a big part of me gaining 9,000 listeners. So my thanks to Anne-Marie. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on News Talk. I'm open all week long on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. And all emails and tweets are read, even the abusive ones. Don't actually get too many of them. Nice people listen to this show. 9,000 more of them, as I've been at pains to point out to you. Anyway, I'll stop banging that drum for now. There'll be more of it soon, I'm sure. Have a great weekend and talk soon.